read the same scripture verse that we read last week, and we're kind of in a part two in our uh, sermon series on Colossians. Uh, We're taking two weeks to focus on this particular scripture verse, specifically talking about Christian community, or as we like to know it, the church, right? And last week, Alex outlined what that church community should look like, and how within a culture of withdrawal, a culture of anonymity, in which we don't want to take that step to enter into community, right, that it's worth it. That being a part of Christ's community actually draws us closer to Christ, and increases our ability to look like Christ, and we grow in spiritual maturity. That's the reason why we do this thing week in and week out, right? And so we explained this, and we talked about this a little last week. And this week specifically, we're staying here in this verse because I want to talk a little bit about what happens when that community inevitably faces dysfunction, right? Because we cannot have a conversation about church community and the importance of it without talking about what happens when church community inevitably hurts us. Uh, you know, Alex and I, we started this church uh, really with a desire to restore trust for people who had lost trust in the local church in Kansas City. And so week in and week out, we have conversations all the time with people who just can do the Jesus thing but are really struggling to engage in the church thing again. And, you know, this comes actually a little bit from some personal experience. I felt this way before. Uh, I get to brag a little bit. My family is here with me today. We are, like, spread out between California, Kansas City, and Cincinnati, Ohio, so it's really rare when we're, like, all together. And uh, they're here with me today. I had two wonderful, amazing parents who had flexible enough work schedules in which they were able to throw themselves into the church without any expectation of pay. And so growing up, we helped uh, with three different church plants. So you're like, wow, you're really a glutton for punishment. Because if you don't know, Alex and I planted this church, and it's like only a miracle that we did that based on my my history. But we helped plant three churches. And here, here are the statistics, okay? One out of those three churches still exists today. One out of those three churches. Yeah. Praise God for that one church, right? That's good. That's good, right? One. Uh, I like to think it, it wasn't our fault. I don't think it was, but I don't know. Maybe we're the common denominator. Alex, I'm sorry. Uh, no. Here's the thing, though, okay? Church invites dysfunction. I know that better than anybody else, right? It does. At times, people in the church hurt us, and they do it really, really badly, And it doesn't matter if you're sitting here today and you have uh, a different background than me, a different socioeconomic status than me, a different colored skin than me. At some point in time, someone in the church has let you down. And in the course of our modern era, in a cultural moment in which hashtag church hurt is really prevalent, we're not talking a whole lot in the church about what we do with that hurt. And that's a little bit about what Paul addresses today and what we are going to talk about. 
So if you don't know, we've been in this sermon series on Colossians, and the whole point of Paul's letter is to help us as a church community grow in spiritual maturity. And I find this letter really uh, awesome and fun for the season of church that we're in, because Paul was specifically writing to the church of Colossae, which was a young church led by new young pastors. And I'm like, yep, that's me. Okay, what do you have to say to me, Paul, right? And so we're working to grow in our spiritual maturity as a church community. And as Alex pointed out last week, we can't hope to grow in that spiritual maturity unless we enter into community. And Paul actually takes some time to unpack what that Christian worship or Christian community or what we call church looks like. He does that in verse 16. We're going to pick up there. He kind of details some of the to-dos as a church. But before we get there, I do just want to quickly mention, quick aside, today is what we call Pentecost Sunday in the church calendar. And if you're really old school, you say Pentecost. Anybody ever heard that? I'm like, why do we say that? I don't know. Uh, maybe somebody much smarter than me can tell me later. But today is Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday is a celebration of the birth of the church. And it comes after Easter, and it comes after Ascension Sunday, which we celebrated last week, because Jesus, after his death and resurrection, he ascends to heaven and he says to his disciples, even though I am leaving you to go sit at the right hand of the Father, I'm going to send my helper or the Holy Spirit to come help you. I'm not leaving you high and dry. I'm not leaving you to figure it out on your own. I'm going to send somebody to help you figure it out. And so on this day, we celebrate this moment where the Spirit ascends on the disciples in Acts 2, and the church is birthed. The church of Christ is born, as we said earlier. And on that day, 3,000 people were added to the kingdom of Jesus. And today, that is the day in which we get to celebrate the church that we get to stand on their shoulders and hopefully continue to move forward with their reputation. And so Paul takes a little bit of time speaking to the early church whom we celebrate today and says, here is how you engage in church. Here's what Christian worship or church should look like. And first, Paul says, the church community should be rooted in Christ. He says, picking up in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You know, in John 1, John's gospel, he outlines from the very beginning of his gospel that Jesus himself was the word. You know, you hear that kind of, you know, given around sometimes in church, you hear the word, the word, the word, and it's like, what does that mean? Paul makes it pretty, excuse me, John makes it pretty clear that the word is Jesus himself. That the word is the teachings of Jesus. It's the life that Jesus lived. It's what Jesus did. And so when Paul says here, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, he's essentially saying in the words of Scott McKnight, you need to dwell richly in the words spoken by Jesus, words spoken about Jesus, and Jesus himself. May you dwell richly in him. And this is why we at Midtown Church steep everything we do in the life a story of Jesus in his teachings. We let his teachings inform what we do, what we say, the way in which we act, the way in which we worship. As Scott McKnight put it, manifest the way of Jesus and let it take root among you. The church, first and foremost, Paul says, should be rooted in Christ. 
And then Paul says, church community should hold one another accountable. And I don't know about you, but I'm like reading through this verse, and I'm like, oh, yes, rooted in Christ. And then I get to hold accountable, and I'm like, ooh, okay, what about that one? Uh, And, you know, here's the deal. We live in a culture in which America tells us we can be individualistic, we can be consumeristic, we can slip in, we can slip out, we don't have to have accountability, we can be anonymous. And Paul says here, no, Uh uh-uh. To be in church community, you actually have to hold one another accountable. Notice what's not here. Paul doesn't say, hey, leader, you teach and admonish the people. No. He says, teach and admonish one another. And you know, that sounds great theoretically, but that actually means that church requires your participation. That you actually have to show up and be a part of what we do, whether that's in a big context here or in a microchurch context, if you consider this your community. That means you actually have to participate in the church going process because people pastor people. Alex and I, as much as, yes, I love you and I pastor you, the people that pastor you are those in your microchurch community. When I say, hey, Brad and Danny, y'all are leading a microchurch, it's, hey, Brad and Danny, you're pastoring the people in your microchurch. And everyone that comes works together to pastor one another, lead one another into the person of Christ, in a Christ-likeness. And so Paul says, in order to do church... You actually have to hold one another accountable. You have to be present. The church is better because you choose to come and be a part. This is why we believe so much in microchurch at Midtown Church. Because it is impossible to be anonymous when you are in microchurch. It's why Alex and I regularly ask you, as well as others on our preaching team, to hold us accountable to the teachings of Jesus. It's why we share this platform, because we recognize that this thing today that we call church and the thing that we do week in and week out throughout the week is something that you are all responsible for. Not just Alex and I, not just Brad and Danny, not just Justin and Sam, not just Christina and Cade, not just Amanda, not just Bryce, not just Andy, all of us. So Paul says the church is first and foremost rooted in Christ. It's holding one another accountable. And thirdly, Paul says the church community should sing songs of thankfulness. Picking up in verse 16 again, Paul says sing psalms. P-S-A-L-M-S. We're going to say psalms a lot, so just there you go. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You know, similarly to the early Christian community, as a church, we gather week in and week out, and we sing simple songs. We read a Psalter reading, and we sing the doxology hymn because we believe that as a community, once we orient ourselves around the song, the artistic expression that is so deeply ingrained in our bones, it will help us look more like Christ. Uh, I don't know about you, but um, 
I did not grow up with cable TV, and there was a huge part of me that held a, a grudge against my parents for that for like the longest time. I know, I guess they just believed I didn't need to be watching TV. It's fine. But so I was that kid that watched like the reruns of Disney Channel shows on the ABC, like on Saturday mornings. Anybody else, or is that just me? Okay, I'm not the only one. Uh, so I would get glimpses of like old TV shows like Hannah Montana, That's So Raven, The Proud Family, you fill in the blank, right? Your favorite, whatever. That's what I watched. And let me tell you, I can't tell you the last time I watched any of those shows, but I still remember a lot of the theme songs. So see if you can sing with me. Uh, you get the best of both worlds. Yeah, okay, you got it, you got it. Or That's So Raven, It's the Future, I Can See. Okay, okay, there you go. We remember these songs, right? We remember these songs. Why do we remember them? Because artistic expression has a way of rooting itself in our bones like nothing else does. And the reason Paul says, sing psalms, give psalms, right? The reason why he says to do these things is he knows those things root in our heart and in our head, in our mind, in a way that nothing else does. And that's why we tell our worship team week in and week out that the songs they sing impart more theology on you all than anything Alex and I say. Because when we sing songs, when we participate in that artistic expression of thankfulness, something happens to our souls, our hearts, our minds. And Paul says, this is what the church looks like. The church looks like a place in which we're rooted in Christ, we're being held accountable to one another, and we're singing songs of thankfulness. Now, I recognize I just described a very idealistic, utopian, somewhat utopian version of the church, right? Because some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, yeah, that's great. I'm so glad Paul says the church is like that, but hmm, that's not been my experience. Uh, a few things on that. First of all, I think sometimes we, we're like, man, we just need to get back to the early church. And um, if you think that, which I understand why. If you think that, you should probably go read Paul's letters because they were really dysfunctional. Like, you think we're dysfunctional today, the dysfunction was like on a whole nother level, okay? We're talking about like literal idol worship, what, all the things, what have you, right? And so when we say like, oh, we just need to get back to the early church, yes, I agree. There are some things the early church did that were incredible that we could learn from. But also, the early church was like not exempt. They didn't have the secret sauce to like being perfect or like looking like they had it all together or really having it all together. And the same is true of church today. Um, we necessarily, we don't really have that secret sauce, right? We look at Paul's description of the church and we think, oh, I don't know right? Instead of being rooted in Christ, we see a church that's rooted in legalism, American culture, misogyny, racism, a personality. You fill in the blank. Instead of seeing a church that's holding one another accountable, you experience a church when you slip out and you slip in and no one knows your name and leaders aren't held to account. Instead of being a part of a church that sings songs of thankfulness, sometimes you feel like you, work, you walk into a little bit more of a rock concert, right? That you do really songs and worship that reflects the person of Jesus Christ. And so sometimes you look at the church around us and we're like, ah, this is just not computing. And yet, even though Paul's description sounds utopian, Paul was a realist. He knew that the church was a really messy group of petty, dysfunctional, anxious, stressed, rude, angry, hateful, prideful, selfish people. 
He knew that. And yet he still says, engage in church community. Because in our messy imperfection, we decide to gather again and again as a community rooted in Christ, holding one another accountable and singing songs of thankfulness because it's just worth it. It's worth it because we know we want to look more like Christ. And if Christ engaged in that messy community of church that was those 12 disciples, we can too. Henry Nowlin puts it this way. He's an author. It's uh, just really actually a very profound author. So if you've never read any of his stuff, I would really encourage you. That would be one to look up. Henry Nowlin, he's just an author, a pastor, a really incredible man. And he said this. It's important to think about the church not as over there, but as a church, or as, excuse me, but as a community of struggling, weak people of whom we are a part of and in whom we meet our Lord and Redeemer. Church is not over there, it's here. And it's a bunch of struggling, weak people. But the question is, in order for us to be this type of community, we're gonna have to deal with the hurt that inevitably rises. The dysfunction that comes, yes, even in this church community. I know some of you are like, that never happened here. It will. I will say something that offends you, and we're going to have to have a conversation about it. And I will not be perfect, and neither will Alex, and neither Amanda, and we will mess up a lot, and we're going to have to work through it together. And so Paul actually gives a strategy, because he is a realist, for what we do when this hurt and this dysfunction inevitably happens in community. He says in verse 13, if one has a complaint, which, by the way, I really wish he said when. Mm. When one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Notice Paul here doesn't say forgive the person, and this one hurts. He says forgive one another. This is hard, especially for those of us that have incurred some deep pain. And I do just want to briefly say, there are moments in which there is not blame on each side, especially with sexual assault or any type of abuse experience in the church. So I just want to go ahead and give that statement here. But this is hard for us because a lot of the times when a hurtful situation happens in the church, um, we don't want to turn the eye on us. We simply want to turn the eye on everybody else. And the reality is, is Paul is very gently saying, hey, there might be blame on both sides. There might be blame on both sides. You have to learn to forgive one another. James Dunn puts it this way, a community has hope of holding together and growing together when the need for forgiveness is recognized on each side where fault has been committed. Not only does Paul say we have to work to forgive one another, and we're going to talk a little bit more about how we do that towards the end, but he also says we have to forgive because Christ has forgiven us. See, if you're a Jesus follower, at some point you've recognized your own propensity towards self-destruction. You've come to Jesus and you've said, oh man, Lord, I need your help. Please forgive me, continue to forgive me, and help me to walk in this kingdom path, right? And so if you've done that, you are a part of what we call a forgiven community, a community that's received forgiveness from Jesus. And N.T. Wright says this about Jesus followers who have been forgiven, and this one's a hard one, so prepare yourself. First, it's utterly inappropriate 
for one who knows the joy and release of being forgiven to refuse to share that blessing with another. Second, it's highly presumptuous to refuse to forgive one whom Christ himself has already forgiven. Ouch. So Paul says, when the messy community of Christ hurts you, you have to start working towards or going down that path of forgiveness. Because ultimately, Christ forgave you. And I don't know about you, but for as grateful as I am that like Paul answers that question for me and he, he helps me understand what to do with some of that dysfunction, I really hate that answer. If I'm being really honest, I do. And here's why. Forgiveness is really hard. I don't want to do it. I don't want to participate in it. I don't want it to be a part of my life or my practice because it's hard. If I take Paul literally at his word, it means that everyone is worth my forgiveness. And there are just some people out there that I don't think are. Paul says, this means that the church Christian leader who disrespected my time deserves my forgiveness. This means that the person who dismissively responded with do not be anxious from Philippians to your clinical anxiety deserves your forgiveness. This means that the Jesus follower who yelled at you with uncontrollable rage deserves your forgiveness. This means that the leader who cared more about serving on, you serving on the worship team or holding open a door than you as a person deserves your forgiveness. In the words of C.S. Lewis, forgiveness is a lovely idea until you have something or someone to forgive. Right? And yet Paul, echoing not just the teachings of Jesus, but the life of Jesus, right? That the word of Jesus, like Christ will richly in you. He says, Colossian church, people of Midtown, you have to forgive. You have to forgive. And so the question I'm left with then is how do I forgive people, especially those that we're supposed to know better? who are part of this church community. How do I forgive them? What does that look like? And that's what we're going to spend the remainder of our time just kind of walking through today. There is a psychologist. His name is Dr. Everett Worthington, and he's been a Jesus follower his, old, his whole life. Uh, he's in his elder years now, but he's devoted um, his entire work, his entire life, over 30 years of research in saying, how do we work towards the process of forgiveness and reconciliation? Because although we're instructed to forgive over and over and over again, it feels really hard to figure that out in our own lives, right? So he spent his whole life trying to figure this out, solve this question. He worked with some of uh, the worst people in the world that you could think of forgiving, those um, that had been on the receiving end of like a, a murder that existed in their family, or uh, those in sexual assault or abusive situations as a child. And in working with all of these individuals, he was able to come up with a model that I believe is very much based in the scriptural teachings of Jesus and exemplifies the person that Jesus was and helps us actually work towards this path of forgiveness. And it's in this really simple acronym. The acronym is REACH, okay? And it's five steps, five steps. We're going to go through these together. The first is recall the hurt. The second is empathize. The third is activate the altruistic gift of forgiveness. 
The fourth is commit publicly to forgive. And the fifth is hold on to forgiveness. Worship team, if you guys want to go ahead and find yourself to the stage. We're going to walk through these. And I encourage you, as I'm walking through these, if you can think through a moment in time where you just, you've had some hurt incurred. And, and maybe it's within the context of the church, but maybe it's just like family dysfunction, right? Or mess. I want you to hold that thought in your mind. And we're going to walk through these five. And as I do so, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, like, what are you, which step are you really challenging me in here? Right? Because if forgiveness is a journey, it's probably, you've probably maybe taken some steps on this path. So what path, what journey, what step are you calling me to take in this area of forgiveness in my life? So let's start with the first one. Recall the hurt. In the word of Gerald, words of Gerald Griffin, he's a pastor at Bridgetown Church, only a realist can forgive. Don't you love that? Only a realist can forgive. You know, I think a lot of the times when hurt is incurred upon us, when we're on the receiving end of something that's really hurtful, our propensity is to kind of just stuff it all down, right? Because we don't have to like, we don't want to have to work through it or really think through it or deal with it. And inevitably the problem with stuffing it all down is something will happen that like triggers that. And all of a sudden that like hurt and anger just begins to rear its ugly head in your life. And so part of the reason why we start with recalling the hurt is because we have to remember what that was like. Like we actually have to get access to those emotions that are in the back of our head. And we have to remember what that thing was like. So you've got to be a realist about what happened. It's, this is not the time to like excuse behavior or say, well, I'm sure they knew better. No, this is the moment to say, okay, what were those emotions like? What did that hurt feel like? What did that pain feel like? How do those words sting? How do those actions hurt? What did that moment feel like? And I would encourage you, I just want to start off kind of this conversation by saying if you're even thinking about this and you're like, man, I'm going to need some real help, I would encourage you to reach out to a counselor or a therapist. I see a counselor uh, twice a month. My husband, Alex, he's a spiritual director once a month. We've got lots of resources and people we can send you to. I think a counselor or a therapist is a great place to start in working through the process of forgiveness. But Paul's, or excuse me, Worthington, Dr. Worthington, says that we have to start from a place of recalling that hurt. And I get that this is a really, really difficult step, right? But the reality is this step and the difficulty associated with it is going to be much easier in dealing with than letting that unforgiveness fester in your life for years and years to come. Because the pain and the frustration and the anger and the turmoil will continue to eat at your soul until you've got nothing left. And here's what I know. Hurt people hurt people. And if you continue down this path of unforgiveness in your own personal life, you might find yourself incurring the same pain that someone incurred upon you. And so we've got to start with recalling the hurt. Then... We've got to empathize, E, empathize. I don't know about you, but when someone hurts me, I want to think that they're like the worst person in the world. Like there's no good in them, right? Like they're just trash. If I'm like driving down the road, right, and someone just cuts me off, they are not like an image bearer. They are not like a teenage driver. They are not lost in a new city. No, they are a horrible human being. 
thing, right? Here's the thing. We do the same thing with people who actually deeply wound us, right? And I think part of the reason we do this is, is we don't want to look at ourselves and see where maybe we could have contributed at some point. So a little bit of a defense mechanism. Um, but I also think it leads to a sense of self-righteousness sometimes too. Like, I'm a little better than that person, right? A little better, maybe a little better. Not much, but a little. And yet I think it's really important that we figure out in this process of forgiveness how to empathize with the people that have hurt us the most. You know, Brian Zond, an author who I really respect, he says this, an enemy is someone whose story you haven't heard. And one of the best steps in empathy is remembering the offender's story. Being able to recall, if you know it, what that person went through in life. And maybe if you don't know it, if you're still in relationship with them, maybe even just asking them, like, hey, what's your story? What was your family life growing up? Not like trying to be their counselor or therapist, but simply to just like make them a person again to you, right? Like, oh yeah, this is like a living, breathing human being that was like made in the image of Christ. And so sometimes that first step of empathy is just saying like, man, I need to know this person's story. It's part of the reason why we can think someone who cut us off is such a villain, because we don't know them at all. So first, we have to recall the hurt. And second, we have to empathize. And really, I, I ask you to ask the Holy Spirit to just help you see like how Jesus sees them, right? Like, help me see that, Lord. And then third, we have to activate the altruistic gift of forgiveness. The key word here is altruistic. You know, in society, uh, like in culture, forgiveness is seen as like something that I give someone because it makes me feel better. And that's actually really backwards in the way that Jesus views forgiveness. So one of the most incredible acts of forgiveness that we see in the Bible is when Jesus hangs on that cross and he looks at his tortures and the people that are murdering him. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And you know, when we think of forgiveness, we think, oh, it makes me feel better. But in that moment, Jesus was not trying to feel better about himself. Like, that's not what he was doing. No, Jesus was forgiving them because it was the only gift that he himself could give those people. There's nobody else that could have forgiven those accusers, those torturers. The only person was Jesus, the one that they tried to murder or did murder, and then he resurrected. That's great. But right, those are the only people. He's the only person that can do that. And similarly, when someone hurts us, you are the only one that can forgive them. You're the only one that can give them that gift. It's only you. And so when we forgive people, it's not because it makes us feel better. It's because we're giving a gift to someone they don't deserve. We're giving them that gift. So first we have to recall the hurt. We have to empathize. We've got to give people the altruistic gift of forgiveness. And then four, we commit publicly to forgive. Now, I am not saying that I'm going to have you guys line up and get up on stage and like confess all the areas or say who you're going to forgive or whatever. That's not what I'm saying. Although I'm sure there are some churches that have done that. But we're not doing that here, okay? So here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. Find a trusted friend or maybe a therapist or maybe you even want to do this in a written down context. I am a huge journaler. Fun fact, I'm not tooting my own horn, but fun fact, people say, uh, research has shown that if you journal, you're actually statistically a healthier person. So if you've never 
never considered doing that. It's a great practice. I use it in my life all the time. But commit somehow publicly, whether in word or in writing, that you're going to forgive that person. And here's why. Forgiveness is a process. It's not like a one and done thing. Like, I forgave someone and then I walk away and I'm good. No. It's something that's going to keep creeping up in your life. And sometimes we have to have a moment that we can look back on and be like, I committed to forgive them. Like, I did. I committed to forgive them. And so I'm not going to feel guilty when inevitably those emotions arise, inevitably when I get kind of angry again when something triggers me. No. I'm going to remember, okay, this is a process. This is a journey. I committed, and I'm going to keep walking in that commitment to commit to forgiving people. And lastly, Worthington says, we have to hold on to forgiveness. And I love this verbiage because when it comes to forgiveness, because it is such a process and it is such a journey and it is such a struggle, sometimes we have to hold on to it for dear life. Like, there's no part of me in this moment that feels any empathy towards so-and-so, but I committed because Christ forgave me to forgive them, and so I'm going to keep going back to that moment, and I'm going to hold on to it for dear life. I'm not going to let anything take my grip off of this forgiveness. I'm going to keep holding on to it because I know if I don't, I will let my unforgiveness destroy me. And so we have to hold on to the forgiveness, knowing that the emotions may change over time. The memories will always be there, though. It's not like they're just going to go away. So we hold on to the forgiveness, and we pray that as those triggers or those memories come up, the emotions sting a little less and a little less and a little less. And so here's my encouragement to you this week. And I, I really hope you know this comes out of a deep place of humility because I myself have lots of places that I need to forgive people in my life. And so I would encourage you this week, whatever moment you had at the beginning of this explanation, I want you to pick a step. Or maybe you just need to start, right, with that recollection of hurt. I want you to begin taking this journey towards forgiveness. Here's the deal. You know, Alex and I were talking this week, and it was like, oh, okay, we're going to talk about church hurt again. And I, that sounds horrible. I don't mean it that way because I myself have experienced that a lot. But, you know, topics that just feel kind of tired sometimes. You're like, oh, I've talked about this so much, right? But the reality is we have to keep talking about it until the conversation changes. Because the conversation is not like, here's my church hurt, and I'm going to start working on towards that journey of forgiveness. Right now, the, like, the conversation is just, I'm going to stay angry. And as much as I want to create, and we have created spaces to listen, and I want to keep doing that, like from my very heart, that is who we are. That's our heartbeat. We, I like, genuinely care too much about your soul to let you stay there, like genuinely. Because if you don't start working towards this path of forgiveness, it's going to eat you alive. You will not find yourself in church five years from now. And my deepest heart is for you to continue to be able to grow in Christian maturity, in Christ-likeness. And unfortunately, as much as I hate it myself, this is a necessary step. So we're going to take some time to pray, a moment of confession as we do week in and week out, and a time to take communion. And, you know, I think we can take our confession really literally today. 
uh, because I don't think I'm the only person here that may be holding space for someone of unforgiveness in your heart. So I'm going to briefly pray to close this out, and I'll move us into our confession prayer, and then we'll prepare to take communion together. Oh, Lord, this is a hard one. (laughs) Jesus, if I'm being perfectly honest, I don't even feel qualified to teach this. There's a lot of areas even in my own life, God, where I have allowed unforgiveness to fester in my soul. And Jesus, as a committed member of this community, desiring spiritual maturity and Christ-likeness, I just ask that you would help me take a step. Jesus, help us take a step towards this thing that you just so freely did. Lord, as we approach you with humble hearts, remembering that we are the forgiven community, I pray that you would highlight moments in our life today where we need to start taking that journey. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.